Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Your Intention Matters, the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on this one. My name, of course, is still Palmadot, and I am about as fired up as I can be for a podcast episode. And let me tell you why. Every kid growing up at some point in their childhood idolizes somebody, either an athlete, uh, a movie star, an actor maybe a fictional character, poet, whomever. And then at some point as a kid, you think about what would it be like to meet that one person? And today is that day for me. I cannot believe this. I have the former Leafs captain, 50 goal scorer. I have Rick Vive. Rick, pitch me, man. Are you really here? I am here. I am. Uh, well, I'm at home, actually. <laughs> so I'm not actually there, but I'm, I'm I'm here with you on, on the screen, which is which is great. I uh, thanks for for asking me to come on, and uh, it, we'll have a good conversation. Well, this is a thrill for me. I didn't even I didn't even prep this in the pre-call because right now I can tell you, I'm right back to 1984, in line with my mom, collegiate sports at Yorkdale, waiting in line oh. for like two hours to get your autograph. But I'm going to try and keep it professional. I really am. But it's a real thrill to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Good. So, Rick, as we were talking, you know, the title of the podcast is called Your Intention Matters. And that's really, really built on my foundation that nothing is really given to any of us. And it all starts with mindset and intention. And I'm looking forward to your sharing your story. Are you ready to go with me? Yep. Oh, here we go. Okay, good. So, yeah. Rick, in this podcast, listen, we go back in time on this one. And so let's go back to... Anybody hears the name Rick Vive, it usually is linked to hockey because of your decorated career. But I want to go back to, you know, what's your earliest recollection of where hockey was maybe a real potential thing for you, where you really enjoyed the game, you excelled at it. And maybe there was conversation, you know, with your parents and coaches where it's like, this kid's got something here. And, and maybe it's more than just, you know, playing house league on a Saturday morning as you're growing up, you know, out in PEI. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I mean, I was on the uh, outdoor rinks when I was a kid every day, pretty much, and and playing hockey with my my uh, two younger brothers and friends, and uh, I mean that carried on for forever. My father always always made an outdoor rink in the backyard, even if we had a small backyard, there was yeah. a rink and there was room to shoot and skate a little bit and sh shoot pucks. So I did that pretty much every day, and then uh, it's funny, I. Uh, when I was 11 years old in Charlottetown, the Montreal Canadiens were coming there to play the, the Nova Scotia Voyagers, their farm team. So my father didn't have the money to buy tickets for everybody. So, and he was a Habs fan because he's from Gatineau, Quebec. Right. He made my mother a Habs fan, my aunt a Habs fan. So I had to be a Leaf fan because I couldn't be the same team <laughs> as course. my father. <laughs> so anyway... Three of my buddies and I skipped school that day and waited by the, the form in Charlottetown. And Eddie Pelchek, the trainer, pulled up in the van with all the equipment. 
And he says, you guys want to give me a hand? Oh, yeah, sure. So we lug all the equipment into the rooms that we needed to put them in. And he said, okay, you guys come back here at whatever, five o'clock or whatever time it was. Yeah. So there we were at the door. He opened the door. He said, okay, come on in. He said, you two guys go to the Voyager's room and you two stay here. The next thing I know, I'm in the Montreal Canadiens dressing room with all these hockey legends, uh, Guy Lafleur, uh, Cornway. I mean, it, the list goes on. And I'm handing them tape and socks and everything. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, like, what am I doing here? Like, this is, this right. is wild, right? So anyway, my aunt and my mother were at the game because my father bought them tickets. And Eddie goes, okay, he gives me a, a track top and he says, okay, uh, I want you to take the sticks across the ice to the bench. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> so nice. off I go and I hear somebody in the uh, woman in the stands go, that looks like Rick. And then someone says, that is, and then they start screaming. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm in trouble now because I skipped school that day. <laughs> uh, but I got off the hook because I was in the Montreal Canadiens dressing room and got to meet all, all these legends and everything. And, uh, you know, Eddie, Eddie graciously gave us some, a, bu a bunch of sticks and pucks and tape and everything. So mom and dad let me off the hook on that one. And uh, uh, so I was kind of lucky there. But, you know, it, it went on and on. And then I played in a high school tournament in Sydney, Nova Scotia, when I was uh, probably 16, I guess. Okay. And played very well. Got, I ended up getting the MVP of the tournament. And I knew there was OHL, Quebec League scouts in the stands and everything. And, you know, but I wasn't thinking about that. I was just going out playing the way I always played. And then the next thing I know, the draft comes up. And there was no uh, Quebec League teams in the Maritimes at the time. So you got picked by both leagues if gotcha. you were good enough. So I got picked fourth overall by Sherbrooke in the Quebec League. And then I was a fourth pick for, by the Marlies in Toronto in the third round, I think it was. And Johnny Bauer and uh, the chief came out to visit me and try to get me to go to the Marlies. And then, of course, Sherbrooke's contingent came out, talked to me, and I, I, it was a tough decision for me because I, you know, I really wanted to go to Toronto and play for the Marlies, and, you know, I mean, the Marlies were very well-renowned hockey club and junior hockey, but at the end of the day, I, I decided to go to Sherbrooke because I was a fourth overall pick, and I was a fourth pick in the third round by Toronto and they had just won a Memorial cup the year before. Okay. So I make that decision and go there and then everything kind of turned out pretty good. One rookie of the year, my first year when I was 17, the next year scored 76 goals. Then another big decision comes up and that is, do I stay in junior? I had an opportunity to go to the WHA uh, in Birmingham, Alabama and when I found out there was five other underage guys that were going to be going with me, then I, it made it easier for me. And I, I had to make that decision. It wasn't an easy one, but I, I felt, you know, like what more can I do in junior? Okay. If I go to Birmingham. I'm playing men. I'm playing professionals and I'm probably going to get, become better. And, 
So that was a decision I made. It was a tough one. Um, there was some tough times during that season, but I, I ended up having a pretty good year with almost 60 points and I think 26 goals as a 19 year old. So coming out of that, I felt pretty good about my uh, opportunity to play in the national hockey league. So Rick, let me ask you this because, you know, I'm, I was around at the time, but I was just a real baby when this was happening. And I'm, I'm familiar with the WHA and the NHL, but when you decided to leave junior and go to the WHA, was that a conscious decision that I'm going to play pro hockey in the WHA or did you anticipate the merge like it happened? And were you expecting to then be available for the draft? Like, or, or had you resigned yourself? I'm going to play pro hockey in the WHA. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing was go to the WHA and get a year of pro hockey under my belt and play against men. Like I said, yeah. uh, guys that have been playing pro hockey for years and everything. And, uh, that was, that was my biggest thing was, uh, this is what I got to do. And I didn't know anything about the merger that was going to happen the, the year after that or anything. Uh, but the goal was the national hockey league. I mean, that's mm. where I wanted to play, but I thought that this would be a good stepping stone in order to get there. And, uh, lo and behold, there's a merger. And the next thing, you know, uh, the draft comes up and I get picked fifth overall by Vancouver and, you know, I'm like, wow, okay, I'm I'm in the NHL, and <laughs> here I am. <laughs> so, Rick, let's talk about that because you know that year you were drafted fifth overall. Uh, you were drafted ahead of some really ended up being some amazing mm -hmm. players. I mean, Prop and Bork and Goulet and and Kevin Lowe, and all in the same year. I mean, they're all drafted, and here you are, fifth overall. And so, when when you're drafted that high, and you get to you know training camp in Vancouver. I'm curious about this. Was it a sense of, okay, now the work starts or was there some swagger? Like, I have no idea what, were the Canucks good at the time? Was it bad? Or were you like, okay, now I really have to earn the fact that I was the fifth overall pick. Yeah. I think that was probably the biggest thing was that, you know, when you go fifth overall and as you said, Ray Bork, uh, Craig Hartsburg went after me, uh, Michelle Goulet went last to Quebec, but that, I think that was part of the merger. I think that was an agreement they had that nobody would take him. So Quebec would get him because of right? okay. the ramparts. Um, but when you're the fifth overall pick, you, you know, going into camp and everything. Yeah. There's a lot of attention on you and there's, and, and it's not easy. Um, and I didn't get off to a real good start in Vancouver either. I mean, it was uh, one of those things where Harry Neal was a coach and, I don't know what he didn't think I was in shape and, and I, you know, I played okay. I mean, I, mm. you know, I had decent amount of points in the time that I was there, but then all of a sudden February comes along and boom, I get traded to Toronto and it's kind of like your head starts spinning because you're thinking the worst you're thinking, Oh my goodness, uh, my first year in the league and I've already getting traded how many years can I play? I mean, right. am I going to be able to succeed in, in the national hockey league? So, so that, that, that was tough. You know, it's interesting to me because, you know, when I hear you say that you're in year one, uh, you know, you, you've achieved your dream in the sense that you've made the NHL, which is the, the pinnacle for, you know, any pro hockey player. And, and yet you don't even have time to like furnish your apartment and you're being traded. And so I, I, it's a kind of a two-part question. Number one, um, how did you feel about being traded just in general? But number two, 
How did you feel about being traded to the Leafs? Because you and Durlego go for Tiger and Butler. Like, were you jacked up or was like, oh, all right, now what? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first of all, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. Um, when, we, when, when I got to Vancouver, there was no apartments in the city available whatsoever. Okay? All right. Like, I'm going like, wait a minute. Like, you mean there isn't an apartment available in, the, in this entire city? And there wasn't. So I lived with, we, we got a, my roommate and I, and I forget his name. Uh, anyway, it, that's not a, a big factor. We get an apartment in a building that's being built, which was right beside the building that Harry Neal lived in. And I lived with Glenn Hanlon in Burnaby for up until February. So we go on a 14 day road trip. We come home, we get into our apartment. And okay. it's like, oh, finally we get into our apartment. So we have a little apartment warming party, I guess you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 6.30 in the morning, I'm sitting there and, and the, the phone rings. I pick it up and it, it says, it's Harry Neal here, Rick, uh, let me in. And I just hung up. I thought it was one of the guys pulling a prank on me, right? Right. Phone rings again. Because first of all, our phone wasn't even hooked up yet. So it rings again. Rick, it's Harry. Will you let me in? So I press a button on the phone, which I thought was the one that would open the door. Gotcha. I press. I obviously pressed the wrong button. And uh, third time he calls, he says, just come downstairs. I said, okay. I've had enough of it. Come downstairs. Yeah. So down I go and I let him in. And uh, he, he goes, we just traded you, uh, you and Builder Lego uh, to Toronto. Wow. And I'm like, Oh, really? Like, I said, well, like, who did, who did you trade us for? And he said, Tiger Williams and Jerry Butler. And I, I, I actually started laughing because I thought, I mean, here, you got the fourth overall pick the year before me and then the fifth overall pick and we're, and Billy's in his second year and he was mm-hmm. injured in his first year and I'm in my first year and you're trading us for Tiger actually was a good addition for them. He really helped them, but Jerry Butler was, pretty much finished at that point. So anyway, uh, off we go. And uh, it, it was kind of a funny journey because we get on the plane, Billy's wife drove us to the airport. We get to get our equipment at the rink. She picked us up, took us to the airport. We get on the plane and we're sitting there and Billy says, uh, do you want to have a couple of beer? And I said, well, whatever. But, I mean, okay. You know, and the pilot comes on, he says, you know, welcome to Air Canada, yada, yada. And he goes, and by the way, this is election day, so alcohol will not be served on this flight. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> so Billy, Billy, I, I think he offered the flight attendant $1,000 of service. And I said, Billy, Billy, we don't need a beer that bad. <laughs> right. Like, come on. Like, don't be ridiculous, right? And uh, thank goodness we didn't, because we, when we landed in Toronto, every press person in Toronto was at the airport. And uh, so, uh, but then we had to stay there overnight. Then we had to fly to Long Island because we were playing in Long Island the next night. And uh, we get there and uh, Punch was there and, and he says, uh, okay, boys. He said, uh, all I want you to do is go and play your game and keep your nose clean. He said, we're going to give you every opportunity to play. And he he held up that bargain and, and we got a lot of ice time. We got a lot of 
power play time, the whole bit. And it couldn't have been any better for me to go to Toronto at that moment and get that opportunity uh, because it was the best thing that ever happened in my career. You know, Rick, as I alluded in the intro, I'm a Toronto boy, uh, 70s baby, grew up in the 80s. So I grew up watching you play as a kid. And, you know, if anybody were to look at just your stats online and see your, you know, eight years or so in Toronto, they would say, okay, 500 games over a point a game, all kinds of goals, multiple 50 goal seasons, first leaf ever, you've earned the captaincy. Wow, he must have just had an amazing time in Toronto. Just it must have been all aces and across the board. And yet the team didn't really excel on the ice. And I just, you know, you were behind the firewall and yet you had great years there. And so, but like, what, what were some, what were, what were some of the problems with the organization? Like why, why didn't they really exceed the way that maybe they could have? Just, just as a guy who lived it. Two words, Harold Ballard. Harold Ballard. Okay. I mean, Harold, you know, Harold was, he wasn't a bad person and, and Harold didn't treat us terribly or anything, but, but Harold was very cheap. First of all, I think all of us were underpaid compared to guys on other teams that did what we did, but he also would not pay the money for a good general manager or a good coach. You know, so we, we didn't have, uh, smart general managers that could add pieces at the deadline. They made bad decisions bringing in 18-year-old kids on defense when they weren't ready for the National Hockey League and should have went back to junior. And then, of course, the coaches, you know, I mean, they, were, they weren't great coaches. I mean, they were good people. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have good management and good coaching, you got to pay, pay the money. And, and Harold wasn't willing to do that. So, uh, a lot of mistakes were made, and therefore it, it hurt us as a team. And uh, it, w- it was a very unfortunate because uh, we had a, we drafted a lot of good players, but uh, like I said, they were brought in too early. And if they had gone back to junior for another year, maybe two, I think they would have had longer careers and they would have been better players in the National League. Rick, as captain, as the captain of the team, were you ever um, asked your opinion on players and, and, and drafting thoughts as, as kind of the leader of the team? Was there any dialogue from management around, hey, Rick, you're kind of on the ice with the guys. Like, any thoughts about trades or drafting and, uh, you know, processes moving forward or anything like that? Were you a part of any of those conversations in your years as a, in a Leaf jersey? None. None whatsoever. I was never asked. Uh, in fact, I, the funny thing about the captaincy was I was 22 years old and Daryl had been just traded and Harold came up to me and he said, like, usually they would call the management would call you into their office and they, you know, they would ask you, do you think you're ready to be the captain? Like, we'd like you to be our captain, but it's up to you, you know? Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, that wasn't the case. Harold just came up to me one day and said, you're our captain. And at that point I had already been traded once. And I figured if I said, you know, I'm not ready or I don't, you know, I'm not quite ready to take that on that uh, obligation. I I know for a fact, he probably would have traded me. And I wasn't ready to, I wasn't ready for that. I I love Toronto. Uh, I love playing for the Maple Leafs and I wanted to stay there. So I reluctantly took it, uh, knowing that I wasn't quite ready. We had a, a, 
bit of an older team at, when I got it. And then we got a little younger a couple of years later. And then I got a couple of years under my belt as a captain. And I felt a lot more comfortable uh, as a captain of the team at that point. So it took a couple of years to really feel really comfortable with, with that C on my sweater. And, and it, it wasn't easy, trust me. I mean, you know, the, uh, we had some pretty big struggles through those years and it wasn't one of the easiest things that I had to do as a player. Rick, I, I want to shift gears here. I want to keep chatting about your NHL career, but uh, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, okay, so I know all the years you spent with the Leafs, but you also had a chance to play for team Canada, both at the, at the world championships and the world juniors. And, you know, as a, as a Canadian, you know, you know, citizen and as a hockey player, what was that like for you to put on the Jersey, put on the Maple Leaf? Unbelievable. It was, uh, just to play for your country in an international tournament, it's like, I mean, it's like nothing else, really. I mean, well, other than maybe winning a Stanley Cup, which I never got to do, but, um, and the World Juniors was fantastic. It was the first year they ever picked an all-star team. And because it was usually the Memorial Cup winner from the year previous that went to the World Juniors the next year. So it was in Montreal. It was based in Montreal. There was games in Quebec City, Hull, different places, but we dressed in the Montreal Canadiens weight room. So they took all the weights out. They put stalls in there. So okay. we're showering in their showers. We're walking around their dressing room, looking at all the plaques and everything. And it's like, holy cow, like this is unbelievable, you know? And so I'm, I'm 18 years old and I'm here I am in the, and then we got to watch them practice every day. Right. And it was, it was just an unbelievable uh, time for me for those what it was a three week tournament or two and a half weeks or so now we only won the bronze but then again if you look at the Russian team that won the gold all those superstars that ended up coming to the NHL eventually were on that junior team like Makarov and, and Larionov yeah and, yeah all those guys Fedosov uh, yeah you know you name it and and of course the Swedish team who won the silver all the guys that came over and played in the NHL were on that team. Like Nazaland so, and the, uh, what's his name in Montreal? The Matt's Nazaland. Nazaland, Matt's yeah. Nazaland. And a couple, there was, there was about six of them that came over and had, you know, pretty good success in the national league. And um, so it wasn't that disappointing. I mean, we had a pretty decent team, but I think, I'll be honest with you. I think some mistakes were made in, in, in the decision-making of the team. Um, you know, we had guys, Stan Smeal and, and guys like that who had good NHL careers. Don't get me wrong. I get it. But, but I don't think they were really suited for that type of hockey. And, you know, we needed more kind of finesse and, and skill type players in order to have a little bit more success, I think, at that level. So, Rick, let's get back to then your 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 eight years in Toronto. Uh, like, like I said, I mean, a person looking at at your stats online who doesn't know anything about your history at all would say the guy crushed it in Toronto on on average at best teams over a point a game, fifty goals a season, which is still the benchmark to this day, mm -hmm. and it's still the pinnacle to get to. You did it three years in a row, first Leaf ever to do it. You've earned the captaincy, great results. And then you finish the 86-87 season, you're in the offseason, and you get traded to Chicago. And so the trade itself, 
Um, did it go down like it went down in Vancouver where the coach called you? Did you have any insight, any inkling at all that you might be moved that offseason or was it a total shock to the system? No, it was, it was a big shock. It was, uh, in fact, we were at the, uh, I think it was, I don't know, I can't remember the name of the company, TBS, whatever. They own the rights to the Leaf games on the radio. So they had a golf tournament up in uh, uh, Blue Mountain every year. And I was up there for the golf tournament. We're four days away from training camp. Right. And, and Bill Waters is there. He was my agent. And he comes up to me after when the, fin- the tournament's over. He said, uh, I got some bad news. He said, you just got traded to Chicago. And I'm going like, you got to be kidding me. Like, really? I mean, I still had 33 plus goals or more each of my years after the 50. And then here I am off to Chicago. The worst part about that was I had a son. Uh, I had to go back home. I had to load up the car and I had to leave because I had to be there in, for training camp in, in two and a half days. And my wife was left to do all the moving, get the real estate people. And all this time having a, I think it, my son was probably about a year and a half, two years almost at that point. And uh, so then I had to leave and I didn't see them until the end of October. And that was, very fr- that was very frustrating. That's rough. And so maybe, okay, so you make the move to Chicago and you know, as, as I think I probably speak for most fans of the game or any sport, you know, all we want is we want our team to win that that's mm-hmm. all we want as fans. And, and we don't really consider you know, what it's like for an athlete on the team. And so here you are making the move. You're, you're now a new father, a young child, moving to a foreign country, even though Canada mm-hmm. and the U.S. have a lot of similarities. It's a whole, it's, it's a whole, whole thing that goes there. Uh, I have no recollection if the Hawks were a good team at the time, but when you got to Chicago, what was that transition like for you early on? Uh, it was very difficult at the beginning because like I say, my family wasn't there and, and, you know, you miss your family and, um, now on the ice, it was fine. I got to play with Denny Savard and Steve Larmer, nice. which, uh, all of us scored over 40 goals that year. And I ended up with 43 and I had a pretty good, pretty good season and then a, a good playoff. We only played five games, but I think I had six goals in five games, uh, in the first round and we got beat out. We weren't a great team. We were an okay team. We were you know, we weren't young, we weren't old, we were kind of in between. And, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, uh, Mur- uh, Bob Murdoch was our coach that year. And, and this is where everything kind of went in while I was playing was Ali was, was the head of the player association, but he also represented coaches, players. So Mike Keating gets fired in Philadelphia. Okay. Eagle says his agent. He calls Bill Wirtz, who he's like this with. And, uh, you know, we, we had no power back then. Al was like that with all the owners. And we didn't get anything that we asked for in any of the CBA talks or anything. Anyway, he calls Bill Wirtz. He says, Bill, Mike Keenan just got fired in, in Philly. If you don't sign him, your rival down the road in St. Louis are going to sign him. Mm. So, what does Wurtz do? He panics, signs him. And Bob Murdoch found out from the press that they had hired Mike Keenan. 
So Mike comes in. So I go into the next season and, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not playing. I'm, I'm playing just power play. I go to the front of the net and stand there and get cross-checked and everything. And Mike, Mike, I guess, didn't think I was good enough. And so anyway, it was, uh, it was a very difficult year for me. And then, uh, it's like it's like a nightmare almost. What my my in laws were in town for the Christmas holidays, mm-hmm. and we're playing on Boxing Day in Chicago. We're out for the pregame skate, and the trainer knocks on the glass and says, "Come here." And I go over, and he goes, "Mike wants to see you downstairs." I go downstairs. He says, "We just traded you to Buffalo." He said, you got a one o'clock flight and you got to play in Buffalo tonight. And I'm like, oh, great. So I get to the airport. There's a big snowstorm. I don't get there in time to play. And again, you know, my fam, my wife's pregnant with our second son. And I got a two, two and a half year old. And I don't see them until February 4th. Six weeks. Yeah. And that's that's tough, man. And yeah, that was very, very difficult. And so she's left in Chicago to put the house up for sale, to get the moving company, everything. I mean, she had to do everything on her own. Meanwhile, I'm in Buffalo renting a place and buying a place that wasn't going to be ready until May, which was great because we, when she could, when, whenever she got there, we could pick out all the things we wanted on the inside of the house, like, you know, the flooring and the cabinets, whatever. Um, but so the all-star game was uh, on a Tuesday back then. And mm-hmm. you always flew in on the Monday. There was a dinner that night, practice in the morning, then the game that night. You might even have to play with your own team on Wednesday. So I was in LA on Saturday playing. I took the red eye to Chicago that night after the game. And uh, the next morning they came with the the truck and put all the final things into the moving truck and uh, off we went to Buffalo. And that was, like I say, that was February 4th. That was the first time I saw my wife and my uh, son and uh, off to Buffalo we go. Rick, was there any sense of what, when you got word of the trade, once the shock kind of, you know, settled down a little bit and you realize, okay, this is really happening. I'm making another move. Uh, was there any sense of, okay, maybe I may get some more playing time here. Maybe this can be a good thing for me for the, for the balance of my career. Was there any sense of that? Absolutely. That was, well, and, and the funny thing was Mike uh, tried to make it sound like he was doing me a favor. He said, you know, I know you're, you, you know, you're from Toronto. I said, you know, you played there and I wanted you to be near there for the, last part of your career and I, I said Mike Mike I'm not from Toronto right I'm from Prince Edward Island I played in Toronto yes but I said you're not doing me any favors other than you're probably giving me a chance to play a little bit more and sure enough I got to Buffalo and I got to play a lot more and uh, you know so and then injuries started piling up in my third and fourth years there and then it was pretty much over I just I just couldn't play anymore so, you know, Rick, I, I know that, you know, Buffalo was kind of the tail end of your career. You, you kind of bounced between, you know, Buffalo, Rochester, the AHL and the Canucks and, and Hamilton and so on. And so what was it? Let me ask you this. 
from from the day that you retired, how 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 much time prior to that did you realize I'm coming to the end here? And and so you understand what I'm asking? Like, but like, when were you thinking about what, when could be the end until it actually happened? Well, the second last season in Buffalo, I, I uh, separated my shoulder pretty badly, my my left shoulder, and I went for X-rays. And uh, of course, back then we. We, we had no MRIs or anything. So there could have been other damage that I didn't, wasn't aware of. But I mean, my arm, I couldn't move my arm very well at all. So we get the x-ray and I mean, if your normal separation in your shoulder is this, like mine was like probably about like that. And our uh-huh. doctor looked, we're looking at the x-rays and I'm looking at it, I'm going, oh, that doesn't look good. And he, and the doctor says, oh, that, no, that's an old injury. He said, you can see all the calcification and everything he said, I said, well, no, I, I said, I mean, I separated my shoulder before, but I said, I can't move my arm. Oh, don't worry about it. He said, that's an old injury. So anyway, he told the coaching staff and the training staff, there was nothing wrong with me. So I came back in two weeks. I didn't play very well the rest of the season. It kind of healed up in the off season. And then, uh, we started the season. Rick Dudley was a coach, uh, John Muckler came in, he was going to take over for Jerry Meehan after that season as a general manager. And um, he fired Dudley. He took over as a coach. And the next thing I know, I'm in the, I'm in the press box. I'm not playing. I didn't play for three months. Like a healthy scratch, technically. Yeah. Yeah. And so finally the, 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 the turning or the, big moment was we went to Montreal to play and he called about four guys up. We had a bunch of injuries. He called three or four guys up from Rochester and I played and I, I had a lot of family in the Montreal area because my father's siblings and everything, and they were all at the game. And I, I didn't get one shift in that game, the entire game. Oh, come I on. sat on the bench the entire game. So when we got back to Buffalo, I asked John if we could have a meeting and I, I asked him if he could move me. You know, I said, obviously you don't want me here. So, you know, he said, nobody wants you. And I said, well, like, okay, put me on waivers. He said, right. I already did. And I said, oh yeah. Okay. You put me on recallable waivers. No one's going to claim me because they know you're going to recall me and try and trade me. I said, why don't you put me on regular waivers? He goes, it was the same thing. I said, John, you know, it's not the same. And I, and that was a year Boston lost Cam Neely halfway through the year. They needed a right winger. Mm. And I'm pretty sure he knew that and probably figured if he put me on waivers, Boston would probably pick me up and they were in the same division. Division rival. Absolutely. Yeah. And so anyway, I, I went to Jerry B and I said, Jerry, listen, I said, can you talk to John? And if you guys can move me, I would, really be appreciate that and i said if you can't at the deadline send me to rochester because tampa and ottawa were coming in the next year right and i wanted to play and you know i hadn't played in three months and so anyway i go down to rochester and (coughs) excuse me it took me quite a while to get my timing back and everything because i hadn't played for so long and we had a good playoff run. I, I played pretty good and went to the semifinals. And then the next year, uh, I made a mistake. I I tried to do it 
on my own when I probably should have went and got an agent. So I called like the GM in Ottawa, Mel Bridgman, Esposito in Tampa, like eight, nine times, never heard back. So finally, I, I Dale Howard Chuck was my roommate in Buffalo and he lived about four houses away from me. So I knew that he was good friends with John Ferguson from the Winnipeg Jets uh, days. And, and, and John was uh, head of player personnel or something with Ottawa. So I said to Dale, I said, would you call Fergie for me and, and uh, ask him to call me? He said, sure, no problem. So John Ferguson calls me and I said, listen, John, I said, I, I can't get a hold of uh, uh, the general manager there. I said, but I, I want to play there next year. And I said, look, I'll, I'll play for the minimum salary at the time it was 120,000 and far less what I was making before, before that. Yep. And I said, we can worry about the contract and put in bonuses and whatever, uh, you know, once, you know, we get there or, or sit down and we'll, we'll iron it out. I'm not, I, I don't have any problems with it. So anyway, he said, oh, he said, you would play for that much. And I said, absolutely. I said, I want to continue to play. And of course, you know, I'm at 441 goals and I'm thinking if I play two, three more years, I can probably get to that big 500, right? Totally. Yeah. And, you know, plus I'm from Ottawa. It's an expansion team. You're getting a guy that, you know, everybody would know to come in and play in the inaugural season. And I thought it was perfect. He did too. But Mel Bridgman didn't think it was. So he told John, no, we don't want him. And we don't want to sign him. And he called me a few days later and he was, he was pretty disappointed. Actually. I was surprised. John was saying like, you know, I can't believe he doesn't want to sign you. It's ridiculous. You know, if it was me, I would sign you right away. And we had a good conversation. I said, John, look, I said, I, I get it. I, I, I want to thank you for what you did. And, uh, you know, I said, life goes on. And, uh, but again, I made a mistake. I should have got an agent and had them contact the teams and, and go from there. And then I signed with, with Hamilton, uh, Vancouver's farm team as a player assistant coach. Broke my wrist, the scaphoid bone in the first practice of training camp and missed 14 weeks. The doctor took the cast off, he said, well, it didn't really heal. He said, I think we're going to have to have surgery. I said, uh, no, that ain't going to happen. I right. said, make me a leather br brace or something I can wear. I said, because I'm done. I, this is my last year playing hockey. And that was a, that was a, a very, very tough decision to make um, for me. Uh, it, it was it was very, very difficult uh, to, to know that this is it. Uh, I'm done after this season. And uh, but as things would have it, I got lucky. I applied for the coaching job in Charleston, South Carolina, which was a new team in the ECHL. And uh, I got the job. And uh, so off I went and became a coach. <laughs> Rick, Rick, let me ask you about coaching because, you know, in, in my world, I, I, I work with salespeople. That's what I, that's my, my world, sales managers, sales mm -hmm. representatives, and so on. And in that space, you can be an average sales person, but yet be 
a dynamic sales leader, a manager, a director. You can, you can do that. And yet you can be um, a, really, a really great um, salesperson and a terrible uh, leader, manager. They're just totally two different jobs. And so for you mm-hmm. as an athlete, you excelled on a team as an individual contributor to that team. I got to think, and you keep me honest here, but I got to think that coaching is a totally different skill set than just, you know, playing on the ice and being part of the team. It's just, it must take a different level. And so what I'm curious about is at what point did you start thinking about maybe I think I might want to do this at some point. Was it quick or was it during your playing days or was it when you were at the end of your, your playing career? No, it was probably at the end of my career. And of course, being a player assistant coach in Hamilton gave me a little bit of, you know, the coaching bug. And that's kind of when I thought this is what I want to do. And I had good communication skills. So I kind of thought, and I knew the game obviously. So I thought, okay, if, if, if you're, if you're good at communicating with people and, and you know, the game, you're probably going to be successful. And the first thing I did was I bought five books. I bought uh, three on uh, sports. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, the, the metal side of it, the uh, psychology. Okay. And then two books on just regular psychology. And I read the heck out of those books. And I learned a ton from those books. And, and I went in there and we made the playoffs my first year. We made the playoffs every year. We won the regular season in 76, 77, or I mean, 96, 97, I think it was, or 90. And, and then we won the, the championship in the playoffs. Yeah. And I, I think the biggest thing I had going for me was the fact that I knew the game, but I think my biggest asset was my communication skills after reading those books. I mean, they were already good, but that those books made it even better. Like I talked to my players all the time. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there, is there something that we can do? Like I would ask them, I wanted to learn, I, like, you know, guys, is there anything we could change that maybe on the power play or anything, you know, and usually that was my leaders of, of my team and, and that I would talk to. But I talked to three players every single day and not necessarily about hockey. It was like we paid for their apartments and everything. Some of them had wives. Some of them had girlfriends. Some of them didn't. The ones that did, you know, I'd call them in and just say, how are things? Uh, everything okay? Uh, your girlfriend liked the apartment. Is it okay? Or, you know, can we, you know, help you? you know, whatever. And I, and, and I told them, I said, I'm available 24 seven. If you have anything that happens at one o'clock in the morning, feel free to call me. And, you know, so I think by, by being that type of person, I think I had the, the players, they all believed in me and, and they all, you know, kind of got on board with what I was trying to teach them. You know, Rick, your, your, your coaching career was like over a decade long in multiple different leagues. And you achieved the pinnacle of winning it all with the Stingrays. And you've had a myriad of experiences as a coach. And so if you think about that championship year with the Stingrays, I'll kind of put you on the spot here, but what comes to mind in terms of your proudest moment, you know, during that year? Well, I think probably... (laughs) it's not a great thing, but um, it's our last regular season game. Ed Courtney, who played for the San Jose Sharks and 
then in the minors and he was kind of fizzling out, but he, we, we talked him into coming to play for us and he scored 50 some goals and a hundred and some points that year. He was one of our best players. The last game of the regular season, he two hands a guy across the face and gets a 20, <laughs> 25 game suspension. So I'm thinking, yes, I'm going, okay, now what the heck do we do now? We just lost one of our best players and we're going into the playoffs. So I just had a meeting and I had a meeting with my uh, leadership group first and then with the whole team. And we talked about it and it was pretty simple. It was like, guys, you know, we can't replace Ed, but if every single guy in here gives 5% more, we can make up for his loss. Mm. And the guys bought in, the players bought in, they, they were, they were ready. And, and they said, yep, we can all do that. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, we, uh, went right through and, and won the championship. And, uh, it, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, we, we bust back from, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, where we were playing in the finals <laughs> where we won. and, uh, the Mecca of hockey. Yeah. Yeah. Really. I mean, it was, <laughs> But anyway, we stopped along the way and, and stopped at a casino somewhere and, and for a little while because they had a thing set up in the rink that we were going to come in in the bus the next day. So we had to go waste some time somewhere. So we stopped at a casino in Biloxi or somewhere and uh, spent a few hours there. And, uh, and lo and behold, we pull in uh, to the rink uh, in the, the big door and, and I mean, there was probably 6,000 fans there. Nice. And it, it was unbelievable. I mean, uh, we averaged, I think even that last season that I, I coached here, over 7,000 a game. Our first year, we had over 8,000 a game. And uh, That so seems whole, oddly high to me. Is that, that, that must have been high for, the, for that area. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Was, it was incredibly high. I mean, uh, it was incredibly high for the whole league quite honest with you i mean uh only louisiana uh lafayette were drawing more than we were and uh so it was kind of but the people loved it they loved the game you know you gotta the thing is with the people in the south they're used to football mm -hmm. so they're used to the physical part of the game and they love the fights <laughs> i mean they just <laughs> love the fights they love the big hits and and they didn't know one thing about the game of hockey. And so they had to, they would like, the, if there was icing, the, the guy in the penalty box would come on and say, uh, that was uh, icing by whatever. And he would, he, would have, he would have to explain the rules, like offside, what offside was, what icing yeah. was. So eventually, I think probably after year two, most of the fans were pretty well knew the game and knew what the rules were and everything. And, uh, uh, we had a lot of season ticket holders. Uh, we had a lot of great fans. And I'll be honest with you, it was probably five of the best years of my life. I, um, it was a wonderful place to live. It was a, it was a great uh, city. Uh, the fan base was incredible. Um, you know, my kids played soccer, played, they've, they started minor hockey there. Um, they played, my oldest son, unfortunately, he was a really good player as a seven-year-old in Buffalo. And when we moved down there, he was so far ahead of all the other kids that he never got any better. Oh. So when our next move came to St. John, New Brunswick, 
he was way behind the kids of his age. And uh, so that was kind of disappointing for me, but they played baseball, soccer, you name it. They played everything. Rick, let's talk about post coaching. You know, I was, I was watching the CBC put together a couple of mini series on grapes, Don Cherry's kind of career in life. And maybe you've seen them. And I remember a scene. No, I haven't. And when, I wouldn't want, and I wouldn't watch them. <laughs> okay, well, let me talk to you about where I'm going with this. So, so the, the, this, the, the scene is where Rose picks up the phone and this is at the time where grapes was um, uh, on hockey night in Canada in coach's mm-hmm. corner. And he, she gets a call from one of the producers and says, you know, Don missed a, a promo shoot or, or something like that. And she says, Oh, Bill, whatever his name was, Bill, it, it's game day. Like Don would never be there. He's in a routine. He, he had his routine of breakfast, walk, lunch, snap, nap or whatever. And so I'm curious about when it was all said and done for you as a guy who's, life had really been hockey from the late seventies into the early two thousands. How, how difficult or was it difficult to transition into a new routine when you're not at the rink, you're not playing, you're not exercising as much. And so what was that transition like for you once hockey was maybe done? Well, I mean, even when I coached, I, I, I worked out a lot. Um, you know, I, I didn't stop working out. I, uh, during the time that I was coaching, and then, of course, I went to St. John at Brunswick for two years with Calgary's uh, farm team. And uh, the funny thing is I got this right here, which if anybody's interested in everything that happened in my life, oh, the other way around. There yeah. you go. Uh, it's still available in, in bookstores and uh, shoppers and different places. Um, but a couple of things that happened um, – I was in St. John and, and, you know, we, we didn't have, we had a young team and, and uh, Al coach uh, got fired after my second year and they hired Craig button. So anyway, the, I, we go, the, we go out to Calgary and we're mm-hmm. going over the whole entire lineup of the flames, the, the American league team, everybody and trying to figure some things out. Lanny was part of the uh, Calgary uh, uh, franchise at that time. And uh, Todd Button, Craig's brother, was one of the scouts. The head scout was there. The president was there. Anyway, Marty St. Louis played for me in St. John. And so anyway, we're, we're, I'm looking at the list and I, and I see a couple of Bill Lindsay, who, you know, was a good player, but he was a fourth liner at that point in his career, making about 1.4 million. Uh, Marty was right down near the bottom. So I said, well, wait a minute here. What, like, why is Marty near the bottom of this list? And and Todd started arguing with me. He said, he can't play in the NHL. I said, really? I said, well, how many times have you seen him play? And he said, it doesn't matter. He can't play. Mm. And I said, well, how many times have you seen him play? He says, I don't know, six, seven. I said, oh, okay. I said, how many times have you seen him practice? He said, it doesn't matter. I said, no, I I want an answer to the question I just asked you. He said, I've never seen him practice. I said, okay. Well, I've been with him for two years. I've seen him practice every day. I see how hard he works. I see him play every game. I know how good he is. 
you you can sign them for a half a million dollars. <clears throat> and I said, if you put them with the right players, he'll be a 30 goal, 30 assist guy easily. And he totally disagreed with me. And then Lanny says, well, we have Bill Lindsay up that high for his leadership. I said, okay, I understand that. You need leadership. But at that time, Jerome McGinley and two or three other good players were turning like 26, 27 years old. So I said to Lanny, I said, do you think those guys are ready to take over the leadership? And he thought for a second and he said, yeah, I think they are. I said, he said, that's a good point. He said, I really do believe that they're ready to take over. Anyway, they don't sign Marty. Uh, Bill Lindsay gets traded a month into the season. And Marty goes to Tampa and wins a couple of scoring championships, an MVP, Stanley Cup, Hall of Fame. It's like, oh, well, yeah, this, like the rest is history, right? Yeah, this guy couldn't play, you know, and and then the and then of course the other part of that is Craig Button calls me like but the third week of July like it's late in the summer and just before that Larry Carrier who we were their affiliate with Buffalo and Rochester when I was in South Carolina so we would get some players that were just signed and they were young and they weren't yeah. ready yet and so Larry had called me probably the end of June uh, and said, I want you to apply for the Rochester job. And I said, no, I think, oh, by the way, the draft was in Calgary too. And, and I went to the draft. I sat right beside Craig, several meetings and stuff. And we had great conversations. So I, you know, I, I, I told Larry, I said, I th I, no, I think I'm okay here. I, I, you know, every indication tells me that I'm going to have a job either here or Calgary or somewhere in the organization. And he goes, no, Rick, I want you to apply. So in other words, he's telling me you're going to get the job. Nice. And unfortunately, I didn't take his advice. Craig calls me about third week of April. I mean, July. And he said, we're going in a different direction. We're going to make a coaching change. We don't know who we're going to hire, uh, but I'm sorry. And I said, well, that's kind of late. Craig, I said, you know, if you had told me at the draft, I could have, you know, looked for another job. Right. And uh, anyway, uh, they uh, about a week later, they hired Jim Playfair. Well, I played with Jim in Chicago. Right. So I go to the press conference because I'm still living in St. John. And we're just talking after the press conference, Jim and I, we're just shooting the breeze and just out of the blue, I just said, by the way, Jim, when did you get hired? And he said, well, Craig got hired June 1st. He said it was probably about a week and a half after that. And I said, really? That's interesting. <laughs> when Craig called me third week of July and said, we don't know who we're going to hire. Right. So anyway, that was disappointing. But uh, and then, of course, the Ice Dogs. Uh, uh, I forget his name now. He was my agent, actually, uh, Trevor, <laughs> Whiff, Trevor Whiffen. And he, and he was a GM of the Ice Dogs. He was also a lawyer, and he was Don's lawyer. All right. So he called me. He wanted me to go coach there. So I turned him down twice. 
So he called again. And I said, listen, Trevor, I'll go there if you put in the contract that I have to be involved in all hockey decisions, the draft, trades, you name it. And he said, okay, we can do that. So lo and behold, I, off I go. We have a terrible team. Uh, we trade away all our best players. And uh, so at the end of the season, uh, uh, the guy who's uh, the, the guy who owned the most of it, uh, Elliot Kerr, he calls me in May and he had a Monday and he said, Rick, uh, Don wants you to resign by Friday or he's going to fire. Come on. And I said, okay. I said, we'll have a press conference Wednesday, set it up. And I'll just say, I'm moving on to do something else. And you pay me for the second year of my contract and, and everybody's happy. Well, he said, that's a problem. Don doesn't want to pay you. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, I said, he may as well fire me now because I'm not doing it. And uh, so my contract kicked in like August. Mm -hmm. He calls me in August. He says, okay, your paychecks are going to start in two weeks. Um, and Don's only going to pay you for six weeks. And I said, and meanwhile, now keep in mind, he's the major, majority owner, but he's saying Don doesn't want to pay. I'm going, well, you own the yeah. most of the team. You should <laughs> right. be making those decisions, right? And uh, so anyway, I said, okay, well, tell him I'll see him in court. And well, he said, you know, Don's got a lot of money and he could, I said, I really don't care. I said, it's a principle of it. You owe me for this year and you're going to pay me. So I'll see you in court. So we go back and forth over the next month or so. And I get it up to 10 months and I get the car and the cell phone for 10 months. So I signed off on it. Mm. I regret doing that. I should have held out for all 12 months. For the whole and, thing. Uh, absolutely. But the funny thing about that is after that season, uh, that was 2001, I believe. I sent out 25 to 30 resumes, uh, junior, ECHL, everybody, every league you can imagine for the next five, six years. And I never, ever got an interview. No kidding. And so that was kind of disappointing because I loved coaching. I, I was good at it. Uh, I don't mind saying that because I, I, I believe I was, I was a very good coach and, uh, but I never got another chance. And, uh, that was, that was very, that was pretty disappointing. Well, let's talk about something that maybe wasn't so disappointing, but maybe elating. And that is the, uh, PEI sports hall of fame. Yeah, that was pretty did, cool. <laughs> did you, did you know about that far in advance and how did that really happen? And, that must have been that must have been pretty wicked for you being a PEI boy. Yeah, I, I got a call and they told me that they wanted to do it and they, and then it was going to be in the summertime and I could be there, which was great. And uh, uh, my brother-in-law, actually Bob Stewart, uh, I married his sister and he played in the NHL for ten years and he was also in the PEI Hall of Fame. So uh, going in when he was already in there was pretty cool and uh, the whole thing was great. It was. Uh, uh, it was a wonderful thing that they did for me and uh, I'll never forget it. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you think of the players that came from PEI, 
uh, and Doug McLean, the coach and GM and that sort of thing. And, and Brad Richards, Gerard Gallant, I mean, the list goes on. There's a lot of players that came out of PEI, Al McAdam. Um, gosh, there's, there's a lot more than that that I can't think of. But so going in with all those guys in the, into the PEI Hall of Fame, not to mention all the other great athletes that PEI developed and, um, you know, uh, won medals in the Olympics and everything else. It was, it was pretty special. Rick, I so appreciate you being here on this episode. Sincerely, one last question for you. Let's fast forward to 07. You've been talking about your family. I know you and Joyce have two boys and Jeff and Justin. And Justin gets drafted by the Ducks. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'm assuming a proud moment as a parent, you know, that this is happening for your child. But was there any hesitation about your son, um, you know, pursuing a pro, uh, a pro hockey career? Uh, no, not really. First of all, he played for the U.S. Development Program because he was born in Buffalo. He was a dual citizen. And then he got a, a full ride to Miami, Ohio, and, and he had a great time there. And uh, But anyway, Burke, Brian Burke drafted him in Anaheim, 92nd overall. So I'm taking him to Miami, Ohio, which is about an hour and a half from Columbus where the draft was for his uh, orientation or whatever it was. Yeah. And I said, I, I, Rick Curran, who was his agent at the time, he said, no, no, don't go to the draft. I said, what do you mean don't go to the draft? I said, no, I said, I I want him to go. And he said, well, if I was you, I wouldn't go. Anyway, I, I, so I said to my son, I want to take you to the draft. I said, it's a short drive. Uh, because I, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to get drafted. And uh, he was like, oh, well, Rick said not to go, and I don't want to sit there forever and wait. And I said, well, all right, if that's your decision, then fine. I said, because I think you should go because I think you're going to get drafted. And I wish I had made him go. I, I really do, because getting drafted into the National Hockey League is a big deal. And getting so to go cool. down on the getting to go down on the floor and meet the personnel of, of the team that drafts you is is even better. I mean, it, it's unbelievable, and I regret that. I, I really do because because he missed out on on a great opportunity to meet some great people uh, with the, with the Ducks back then. Well, geez, I'm sorry to hear that. Was your Rick? Was your draft like that? I know your draft was in Montreal. Was no, there the pageantry? Our, no, our draft was a phone draft. It was uh, a phone. It was a phone draft. Well, because okay. it was because it was the year of the merger, and it wasn't until August. It was late in the summer, and it was a oh. phone draft. So I just got a phone call uh, from Bill Waters and said Vancouver drafted you fifth overall, and uh, I, I remember I'm I'm in PEI at the time, and I'm thinking. Well, wait a minute, Vancouver. Oh my gosh, that's a long way from PEI. Totally. Plus, there's a plus there's a four hour time difference. So if my parents want to watch a game, they'll be watching it at eleven o'clock at night or that's midnight. Right. <laughs> so I, I was a little disappointed, but then you know I, I quickly got over that because anytime you get drafted in the NHL, especially fifth overall, uh, you're you're obviously elated and, and happy about it. 
So well, well, Rick, listen, number one, thank you so much for being here on the episode. I, I really sincerely say that. Number two, congrats on all your success that you've been able to create up until this point professionally in your personal life and your family life. And uh, I just so appreciate you being here. Thank you. No, my pleasure. And uh, you know what? It's funny because it, it relates kind of to what you do uh, with business people and stuff like that. And, and you know, it, it's one of those things that you, like you got to have uh, a really, really deep belief in yourself and, and what you can achieve. And you know what? And, and like I say, if anybody really wants to know how I wrote this book mainly because I think a lot of fans look at NHL, NFL, NBA players and think, oh, life must have been great for those guys growing up and life is great now. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And anybody who reads my book would, would find out. And uh, there's roadblocks in everybody's path. And the drive to get over, around, or through those blockades gives you success. And it's no different in business. It's no different in, 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 in sports. It's no different in the world. If, if you don't persevere and, and, and overcome the obstacles that are in your way, you're never going to have success. That is so well said. And on that note, I think there might be an episode number two in here, maybe some point <laughs> down the road, because I could talk to you all day, man. I really appreciate you being here. And thanks for all the memories of you in the blue and white at the gardens, really. Well, I appreciate your uh, saying that. And I, I, I love playing in Toronto. Uh, the Maple Leafs have a great team now. They got a superstar in Matthews. Um, I got to meet with him, which was fantastic. And, 60 goals, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, the guy's, the guy's going to rewrite every Leaf record that there is uh, by the time he's finished. So uh, uh, I had a time and I went to the practice rink and got to spend four or five hours there, met all the coaches, the team. And it, it was, it was an unbelievable experience for me. And uh, uh, that was after he broke the record, I got to meet him and congratulate him and everything. And, and uh, it was, it was great. Well, thank you again for being here, Rick. It was my pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much. You bet. Okay, everybody. Listen, we're going to wrap up this episode right now. Remember your intention matters. Why? because that's the result you'll tend to get. We're out of here. Thanks to my guest, Rick. And let's go Leafs. Big game tomorrow night. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs>